This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to episode 11 of The Full Ratchet. Thanks so much for downloading and spending some time listening to the thoughts on startup investing from the experts. I'm very excited today to have Gabriel Weinberg on the program, not only because he's an active angel investor with strong success to date, but also because he's currently running a funded startup after successfully exiting from his last startup. Gabriel frequently blogs about his learnings and insights from both sides of the table, and I've really enjoyed reading his content. To give you a sense for what's on deck, in the coming weeks we will be covering advising and partnering with early stage startups, the stages of fundraising, and a deep dive into the convertible note. I know that some of you I've spoken with have been awaiting the launch of one or more of these topics, so I wanted to let you know that they're coming out in the near future, and the investors that we have covering these topics are some of the best, including Glenn Gottfried, a fixture of the Chicago Angel community who may be one of the most active investors in the area, Ann Winblad, who has been a major software venture capitalist in the Bay Area for many years, and she's a really great person too, And Bill Payne, who from my standpoint is the foremost authority on angel investing in the country and has been educating investors for many years. Okay, so we've got some great guests coming up. On today's show, we are talking about one of the most overlooked aspects of launching a successful company. And it is this aspect that Gabriel believes is the number one reason for startup failure. Here's the interview. Today, I'm very excited to have Gabriel Weinberg joining us from the city of brotherly love. He is founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, author of Traction, and has been angel investing for five years now and has had good successes as well as some lessons learned over at his blog at gabrielweinberg.com forward slash blog. For those of us that are newer to angel investing, I think his perspective is especially valuable. He has an intimate understanding of the current venture landscape, both from the perspective of a founder and an investor. Gabriel, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. So the topic for this episode is why most startups fail. But before we dive in, can you share with us how your journey began into angel investing? Sure. So I was off uh, my last company, which was lucky enough to have an exit on. Um, and had that was in 2006. And immediately I was kind of interested in angel investing, but um, really didn't know how to get into it. I probably could have benefited from your podcast if you were doing it then. And so really didn't do much for a few years. And then when the accelerator scene kind of came on board, there was an accelerator called Dream It that got started in Philly. And I was a mentor on their first class. And one of the startups in that class um, kind of really spoke to me as a startup that I could particularly add value in because it was they were doing a lot of things around distribution that I did in my last company. And I just took the plunge then and said, I'm going to figure this out. I want to put money in and be the first money. And um figured out how to do the deal. And uh, that's really where it began. Founders seem to love the uh, investors that have some background leading startups and, and leading them to an exit. So topic today is why most startups fail. 
Many talk about how startups fail because of product or building a product. Uh, you believe that the main source of startup failure is for a different reason. Tell us what you think that is. Sure. So, you know, this is from angel investing and then doing lots and lots of interviews uh, for our, our book on traction. And what we found is, you know, most startups, they, they really do end up with a product that's more along the line of their product vision. So they don't really fail because they don't make a product. They fail because they couldn't get traction. And uh, by that, we mean, you know, sustainable customers coming to their product, which you might call product market fit. And so you could group that into product development, but we think that it's really different. Startups really do do a lot of product development via, you know, lead nowadays and other methodologies, but they just don't spend enough time on the other side, on the traction development side, you know, how they're really going to get customers. And so the pattern that we normally see is, you know, they actually do build something that, that some people want, but then they didn't really think through how to get scalable distribution through any channel. And they try some things kind of half-heartedly at the end when they're running out of money. And then they can't get any real traction to get more financing than the company's dying. You've noted five mistakes that contribute to this lack of traction and failure to acquire customers. Walk us through the first mistake. Sure. So the first one is really in that scenario that I just mentioned about trying to do traction as an afterthought after you build your product. And the real mistake there is not to do it in parallel with product development right from the get-go and start investigating and investing time and some money doing experiments in what traction channel, what distribution mechanism is really going to get you traction when you're really ready to launch that product. So when you do launch it, you kind of immediately have that ramp up and you know either you're off to profitability right away in some cases or you have enough to show for to get that follow-on financing. So what would the second mistake be? And what are your thoughts on how traction should be prioritized uh, relative to product? So let's assume you take my advice and you do you, you start thinking about it ahead of time in parallel with product development. The second problem is you just don't spend enough time on it. And so what we argue is that you really should spend approximately half your time on it. It's half as important. Uh, that is really hard to do because you're just you're getting all this product feedback and you're driven to spend more and more time on product and the traction stuff, your product isn't ready yet. Why are you trying to get traction? Or, you know, you're running experiments, which are kind of time consuming or doing unscalable things, which can be tedious. And so it's actually kind of hard to force yourself to do it, but it's really valuable to do because if you don't do those tedious unscalable things at the beginning, you won't figure out the right distribution channel and you won't get traction. Um, and so you really have to, uh, what we argue is, you know, make a, literally make a schedule, make some traction milestones, set it up so that you're forcing yourself to spend half your time working on traction, just like you would product milestones. Right. Yeah. I recently talked about and wrote a short blog post that I called MVP versus MVC. The message was about minimum viable product and minimum viable concept, and it related to a startup that I saw whose only channel was internet, and they had spent three years building the product. They had dumped an enormous amount into R&D manufacturing out in China, and I couldn't believe that they had spent so much time on that without testing any of their customer acquisition, considering that their only channel was internet. I mean, that's something that they could have tested up front. And even if they didn't have to adapt the product in any way, at the very least, they could adapt uh, the messaging, the promotion, the positioning. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's pretty par for the course and really leads to that third, you know, the, the third mistake we see, which is 
founders are very biased towards certain channels, in this case, internet, right? And rightly so, like internet is probably what they know, you know, they're probably maybe they weren't salespeople or used to affiliate marketing or, or other offline trade show kind of things. But the problem with that is, you know, in our research, we saw 19 different traction channels that get used again and again by different types of businesses. And it's very unclear at the beginning, which channel is really the best one for you. And you really only need one. But if you're biased, coming in biased and only trying ones that you previously are familiar with or that you just think are going to work with some gut feeling, you're really limiting yourself and probably not going to find the right channel. Um, and so, you know, we really try to tell people to structure their traction in a way that overcomes their biases. It kind of forces you to brainstorm about channels you wouldn't normally think about and even experiment with them. Right. Yeah. I remember reading about uh, target markets and verticals and how, uh, you know, we're, we're always hearing about focus and how you should focus on one vertical or niche. But if you really don't know sort of what channel or what vertical is going to hit, uh, I guess that would be a strong endorsement for testing. Yeah. Let's, let's suppose even that you did a good customer development, right? And you can understand what niche market you have to hit first. You know, you have a good vertical. Then, there's still a question of what is the best way to reach that vertical. It could be an offline event that those people congregate in once a year. It could be the case that at this event, there's a speaking engagement. If you were a speaker at that event, you like get traction in one shot. It might be the case that there's no way to do that. And online is the best way to do it through, through Facebook. But the point is like, you really have to think about what is the right channel. And there are a lot of them and people aren't really thinking about them in any systematic way. Yeah. And on that point, from a, a systematic perspective, as opposed to a random or an opportunistic perspective, how do startups often approach traction and how would you recommend they approach it? I think they approach it in a very kind of random ad hoc, take your metaphor, like random walk on Wall Street kind of way <laughs> yeah. where they, they oftentimes you're like, well, what did you do? And they're like, well, we wrote some blog posts. We tried Google AdWords. You know, we went to a meetup, basically things that are the path of least resistance based on their previous experience and the easiest thing to do that they can think of. The problem with that, as we're talking about, is you are biased, one, and two, you didn't think about all the other channels that startups have gotten to be successful. And if you think about it, everyone has a lot of people in Internet startups have similar biases. So you basically are, are chasing the crowded channels when they're underutilized channels that might be way more effective just for the sake that they're underutilized in your industry. And so the approach that we kind of advise in the book, we call it bullseye, is you know, to systematically go through all the, all the 19 channels and brainstorm ways to use them effectively, and then go through a ranking and prioritizing process to see which ones quantitatively in a spreadsheet might be the most successful to you. Figure out the top three, do cheap experiments in parallel, because you can do experiments in parallel. And then if one is working, you know, really then focus and drill down on that traction channel and see if you can really get it to work or not. If you can get it to work, great, you're done. You know, you just keep doing that until it doesn't work. If it doesn't, then you kind of rinse repeat with the process, with the data that you just learned and, and keep doing it until you find one that works. Uh, but it's a very quantitative and systematic approach that cycles through all the different ways you can get traction as opposed to kind of the random approach where you just hit a few things and not very well. So if you encounter a startup, great idea, great team, 
but they have not taken this systematic approach or this bullseye approach. How do you advise them and how do you proceed with that relationship uh, from the investor perspective? Right. So unfortunately, I'd say it's, it is a lot of startups that, that do this. I mean, some startups just magically hit the product market, you know, kind of fit and find a distribution channel right at the gate. But those are very rare. Most of the time, they don't do that. It's more like your story where they, they even build a great product, but just haven't thought through distribution. And in that case, you know, I take them through the help them take them through this process. And to be honest, we do that, you know, my startup too. That's how this kind of we arrived at it is it's kind of you want to do a systematic approach when you're not getting traction to try to get traction. So I literally take them through that process and um, advise them along the way, try to give feedback as to what experiments can be done and, and, and help them brainstorm on different things that I've seen worked in the past. Gabriel, the final mistake that you cite that causes lack of traction and startup failure relates to what you refer to as micro opportunities. Can you first explain what micro opportunities are and then walk us through how startups fail to recognize and respond to them? Sure. So this is even kind of most important or even really relevant at the at the very beginning when you, we really don't have much traction at all. A micro opportunity is some kind of external event to your company that has happening very quickly that you could take advantage of if you kind of insert your startup into that. So a couple examples with uh, with DuckDuckGo which is the search engine startup I run. When Reddit first came out with Reddit advertising, they launched some beta test on Hacker News. And Reddit was already kind of into DuckDuckGo a little bit. And I saw that immediately and said, wow, if I'm on that, I could be the first advertiser on that system, basically, and get amazing kind of response and click-throughs by virtue of being the first. And I, I did that, and it worked amazingly well. Another one example early on is... I noticed there was a, twin, a trending Twitter hashtag about ducks and our startup is named DuckDuckGo and kind of rode that trend a little bit. And these were, these were very quick unfolding things like on the order of a week or in the Twitter case, like a day. When you're a bigger company, these things aren't going to move the needle probably unless they're like a big international news event or, or you're a B2B company and it's like a perfect somehow opportunity to reach your customer base. But when you're small and you're looking for the first traction, the first customers, these things can actually move the needle quite a lot because by definition, they're kind of external to you and they're involving a lot of people. And if you just kind of hook yourself onto it, you can kind of ride the wave. So circling back to your point around systemizing things, uh, do you talk with your team uh, as a founder and say, look, we need to look out for these micro opportunities and then we need to to meet, discuss, collate them, and decide which we're going after? Yeah, and, and micro-opportunities are, are something that startups can do that big companies can't, which is why they're an opportunity for you, because you can be nimble, and you can see something come across your email today and actually just drop what you're working on and just code something up or, or go out, leave, leave the office and go seize that opportunity just today, um, whereas big companies just don't do that. And so, yeah, I think it requires you to be kind of hyper aware of what's going on and then seize those opportunities, be nimble enough where you can just drop everything and seize them for a day. So we talked today a lot about traction, key mistakes that startups can make uh, that can cause failure. From the investor standpoint, how can one use these lessons on traction to help choose startups to invest in? And what should they expect to see from startups that are fundraising? So the bar definitely moves, as you've probably seen. 
how much traction a startup needs to have to get investment really varies per what you're looking at, right? If you're, um, sure. are you a kind of a thesis investor or what kind of things are you investing in? I'm all seed stage. I look mostly at B2B. I will do software that's being applied to traditionally hardware-centric markets. I don't do a, a lot of ad tech or fintech. Uh, it's not my core, at least. But uh, Got it. So you, so in your kind of area, that's pretty focused. You probably see a certain sector type of company. Um, you know, if you see a few companies that are getting funded, that's kind of the bar at the moment for that type of company, how much traction they need to get funded. Right. And it, and it really varies per, per, per company. And then it also varies a little bit. You can turn it back if you have a track history, or you have track record of, you know, previous exit or something, you could get investment earlier. What's actually curious to me is that it seems that in general, people are expecting you to have more traction before you get financing from non-friends and family investors. On the one hand, that makes sense because it's easier and easier to start a company. So there's more and more companies and that's how investors are filtering them out. On the other hand, what's playing against that is there are more and more investors, which means you got to go earlier to get better deals. And so it's been interesting to me how those play out, but it really seems like the traction, getting more and more traction has been winning out lately, that you need more traction to get investment in general. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Right. Yeah, I was reading a blog post on Twitter. Mark Andreessen and Fred Wilson were discussing it, but it was a blog post by Fred, and they were talking about the requirements at each stage of financing. And it seemed like they were expecting the traction piece post-Series A. And maybe that's the case in New York or in the Bay Area, but certainly in Chicago, the expectation very much is that there's product market fit and market validation very early on uh, before a formal fundraise. Yeah, I mean, I think it, again, kind of varies per type of company, but I, I'd say certainly for kind of the B2B space, that really seems like it's the case. 
for consumer, like if you look at Union Square's portfolio, it's a little all over the map, you know, though for some area, I think it depends on kind of a sub area, like for something like a social networking thing, I think they do want to see a lot of traction for something that's more like a network in a kind of a new area where there's not a lot of competition. Maybe they're willing to invest a little earlier. So it, it probably varies a decent amount, but at the very least, I think investors are looking for, if you even don't have traction, you at least have a sensible distribution plan, right? There is a quote from Mark Andreessen saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's essentially this, you know, the number one reason we pass on startups is because they don't have a distribution strategy. Really? Huh. You know, I, I talk with a lot of startups and I ask them questions about demographics, psychographics, the breakdown of their target market, how appropriate their solution is for the target market. Would you also recommend that investors ask these questions about, you know, what channels are you going through and what have you tested? Uh, how does acquisition look and how does engagement look with each of these channels? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe, and we kind of argue in the, in the traction book we wrote that, you know, you should spend half your time as an early startup, certainly, and I think in general, pursuing traction. And so it's a sign if you can answer, if you can't answer that question, then you really haven't spent any time working on it. Right. Um, and so to me, it's a big filter of whether you've spent any time thinking about what your distribution strategy is and having tested some things to me is kind of a requirement. Now, it depends how early you are. You know, um, if you're investing in a team in the ideation process, it's reasonable. They haven't done much and maybe you can help think them through that. Um, and, and in many cases, what, what I've tried to do more recently is invest in people I've, I've known for a while and talk to them during the ideation phase and kind of watch them validating some of those channels uh, over time and not, not just getting a snapshot at the time of investment. All right. Switching gears here, Gabriel, can you tell us more about what you're currently most focused on? Sure. Yeah. I am most focused on running a startup called DuckDuckGo, which is a search engine that doesn't track you. Yeah. Tell us more about DuckDuckGo. <laughs> you want a longer answer? Um, well, I'm intrigued. I've heard so much about it. I know some investors that have invested in DuckDuckGo, and uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sure. So I started DuckDuckGo at the end of 2007 on personal kind of personal need, because believe it or not, I was getting dissatisfied with Google at the time, um, seeing more spam and thinking that, you know, I go to all these sites like Wikipedia and Yelp, and they all have instant answers. And when you land on the site, why can't those answers be at the top of the search results? So really launch it with that basis. Um, and then when I got into it, I realized good thesis for the company could be do things that the big guys can't do easily that also make really good user search experience. And so less spam, being more aggressive with spam, better instant answers are still part of that. Um, and in addition, we picked up privacy, another personal interest of mine, not tracking our users, which people love. Big guys can't do it because they run essentially advertising companies and less clutter, uh, which we can do because we just focus on web search, whereas the other search engines you have all these other properties they're pushing, like Google+. Plus. And the combination of those, smarter answers, less clutter, real privacy, we think adds to a compelling search experience that appeals to a real percentage of, of the population. So our challenge is more getting the word out. Very cool. So you're an angel investor. If we could cover any topic in venture investing on the podcast... What topic do you think we should cover and who would you like to hear speak about it? Hmm. Um, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it comes down to me that in angel investing, 
you would have a, there's a myriad of strategies that you could have and you kind of have to pick one and go with it. And, you know, the stuff just have to make sense to you. So I, I personally like hearing about and exploring people's different strategies and the assumptions they have on them. So I guess my answer would be is, is I'd like to see the podcast evolve or a podcast evolve to kind of pick apart different angel strategies. And so if you were listening to the podcast over time, you could really get a sense for the different strategies out there and which makes sense for you and why. Because I think different strategies make sense to different people depending on their geography, their deal flow, the amount of money they can invest, all sorts of things like that. Sure. Anyone in particular out there that, uh, that you'd like to hear talk about their personal strategy? Well, I liked, you might have seen that recent post by uh, Jerry Newman about um, uh, not picking unicorns. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but it was a really nice post, I think his blog is called The Reaction Wheel, about kind of his angel investing strategy. And, and his basic point was, pick a good market, don't worry about picking unicorns, and invest in a lot of deals in that using your kind of personal expertise. And I, I would personally like to dig into that a little more with it and kind of dig into this notion of his argument was you can't really pick very well. So you should just pick a bunch of things in a market you know well. And I'd love to tease that out a little more about, well, how, you know, people are still making picking decisions. And I think people are pretty decent at it more than others. And given that, how can you tell how well you're picking, you know, kind of frame that a little more and take that a little more into the podcast? I would love to hear that. Yeah, when Eileen Lee's article on unicorns came out, I think we all felt this uh, expectation that you got to go out and you got to try and find them. But uh, the reality is you can have a lot of wins and a lot of successes without these billion-dollar ideas, which are a fraction of 1%. All right. So, Gabriel, what is the best way for listeners to connect with you? Uh, Twitter. Um, I'm Yegg, Y-E-G-G on Twitter. Okay. He's uh, at Y-E-G-G on Twitter. The blog is gabrielweinberg.com, front slash blog. And pre-order a copy of his new book. It's called Traction, A Startup Guide to Getting Customers. And I'll include a link in the show notes so you can find it. Gabriel, thanks so much for the time, and I hope we can chat again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Great content from Gabriel Weinberg. He and I have talked offline about his personal angel investment strategy, and I can't wait to have him on again to illustrate his approach and how he's been successful. But let's recap some key takeaways from today's interview. The first takeaway that I'd like to recap is on timing. Gabriel mentioned that many startups fail to address customer acquisition, channel, and positioning until after a product is built, yet this must start at the idea stage and be executed in parallel with product development. As we discussed on episode 5 with George Deeb, there's a big difference between having a product built and having product market fit. All right, the second takeaway, while really hard to do, is on the prioritization between product development and traction. Here, Gabriel advises that founders spend half of their time gaining customer traction, which is rarely the case. It's not intuitive to focus on customer acquisition prior to having a product to sell, and so many founders don't. And the ones that do may get a strange response from others who question why they're spending so much time on something that is less critical than the product. But the ability to drive sales and get traction, in Gabriel's opinion, is just as important as having something to sell. And as we covered in the tip on MVC versus MVP, a startup can explore, validate, and test customer acquisition well in advance of a product being released. 
All right. Key takeaway number three is that startups often approach customer traction randomly without a strategic systematic thought process. And typically, it's the easiest or the path of least resistance for the founder. Gabriel's approach, that he called bullseye, takes a thoughtful look at all potential channels and then allows the team to prioritize and test each. This more exhaustive approach makes the channel strategy much more intentional and will allow the startup to focus on the most critical customer acquisition channels while justifying their strategy to their team and investors. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. This week's tip is about the curse of knowledge, which simply is a cognitive bias that causes more informed individuals to find it difficult to think about problems from the perspective of others who may be less informed. Gabriel talked about how founders are often very biased to one particular channel that they have had success in. This can be problematic when an experienced founder may have entrenched ideas about who the customer is, what they value, where they prefer to buy, and how a product should be positioned in order to compel that purchase. And while it's good to have a hypothesis, in the world of startups, this hypothesis often is dynamic and constantly changing. And many of the best founders are those that are customer-obsessed, always trying to understand their unmet needs and behaviors. You've probably heard many companies talk about pivoting. We thought we could sell X to Y, and what we really found was that this whole other customer group, not previously considered, was in significant need of a slightly different version of X. There are unlimited ways in which a startup may pivot its product, target market, monetization strategy, or otherwise. And founders must listen to their customers in order to adapt. So when evaluating startups with a hypothesis alone, investors must guess whether the founders' preconceived biases will limit market traction. Where, if a startup has prioritized traction from the beginning, they can clearly articulate who the customer is, where they buy, and why they're compelled to purchase. If you were getting your investment dollars in, which scenario would you prefer? All right, that's it for this week. Jump on the site at fullratchet.net for show notes and links to the items discussed on today's show. Sign up for the newsletter and give me a follow on Twitter. My handle is at the full ratchet. Thanks for listening. And always remember to over prepare, choose carefully and invest confidently. See you next week. 